oh, that was it. At least half of every couple wish that their partner was Johnny Depp. Oh, yeah, I did want you to justify. (laughs) I'm sure I said something along those lines, didn't I? Yeah, whereas I countered with 100% of every couple wishes their partner was Johnny Depp. (laughs) Well, I can only speak for half of this one. (laughs) I'm never putting words in your mouth. Yeah, it's hardly like I wish you were Amber Heard. (laughs) I want to keep my face intact. Thank you very much. Oh, what a car crash she is. Watch out, she'll come at you with the lawyers. She'll shit in your bed, Amber Turd. Jesus. And she's drinking a cup of tea afterwards, listeners. It's... <laughs> she's like the Kermit meme, but that's mm-hmm. none of my business. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Every time I say listeners, it makes me want to say dear readers. If you want to be Terry Wogan, that's absolutely fine. Every time. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser-known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story right. is going to take at least five hours. <laughs> right. This story begins in yeah. the Victorian era. Okay. Vincent van Gogh. A name I hope you recognise. No, never no. heard of him. Well, he was an artiste. Was he? People say. And his entire artistic output, everything he ever did, was produced within the frantic span of a brief 10 years, from 1880 to 1890. Uh The briefness of this career was partly due to him spending the majority of his 20s trying to become a missionary, because he was a very godly man. He was. Uh, he, He actually did get a position. He was a missionary, but he was removed from post for giving up his lodgings to a homeless person and moving into a small hut where he slept on a bed of straw. Okay. Because the church said that this selfless act of charity was, and this is a direct quote, undermining the dignity of the priesthood. So, how dare you give up your home for a, a homeless person? And... You're not a monk, you know. <laughs> Do you think Jesus would approve? Do you? Born in a stable. Stupid Vincent. <laughs> he doesn't want reminding of the straw. I've never heard the like. <laughs> However, it was mainly due to his untimely death by a self-inflicted gunshot wound mm-hmm. to the chest mm. at age 37. The I chest. I know, and he was only 37. Um, very good read. I've got a book there. It's called Vincent by Himself. Um, he often was. <laughs> He was, um, but it, it's a series of letters between him and um, friends and family, and it is a very good read, I have to say. It's very illuminating. Does it fill you with a sense of ennui by the end, though? A little bit. Uh, quite a lot of it's sad, but I think because he's he's so revered within the art community now, and, you know, I think his fame will probably only ever grow. No. Oh, from from a base of zero. From a yeah. base of zero. Um, you know, it, it just gives you that little glimpse into the eye of the artist, really. It's it's nice. It's a good read. I can fully, fully recommend Vincent by himself. Mm-hmm. It's a big-ass book, though. It is a big book. A you whopper. can get it in paperback, but again, that is even thicker. <laughs> or I do believe you can get it on Kindle, which I think... 
Oh God, hello Noxy. Which do you, will be do you the have same. Words? She she wants to weigh in on Vincent. She does. She I, has a lot to say. She has a lot to say, Noxy. The fact that you know he he committed suicide by gunshot wound, but there was mm. enough time for his brother to be told and to travel to see him over the two days it took him to die. Because he didn't die of wow. the gunshot wound no. itself. It was the septicemia that set in. It was infection that killed him in the end. Yummy. Yeah. So I guess what we're saying is, if you are going to commit suicide with a gun, consider septicemia. Or not. Well, what I mean is, decide whether you want to die of a horrific um, infection mm. or if you actually want to die of the gunshot wound. And if so, don't do a gut shot. Don't shoot yourself in the chest. Was no. he was he aiming for his heart, I wonder? Was it to be a dramatic? Truth be told, it's been a very long time since I read anything about Vincent yeah. van Gogh, so I'm not sure. And he wasn't my favourite impressionist anyway. Oh, who was? Uh, Sura. Controversial, if true. Anyway, the year after Vincent van Gogh's suicide, another Vincent, a sickly 18-year-old from Brighton, was embarking on his own artistic career mm. that would prove to be just as influential, but even mm. shorter. Oh. Because Aubrey Vincent Beardsley was born on August 27th, 1872. Oh, I like Aubrey Beardsley. Oh, no, you know the man. I do. Well, him of black and white pen and ink. Him of pen and ink, yes. He was known to sometimes use yellow. <laughs> Yes, I did a thesis on him. Fantastic. <laughs> you didn't know, did you? Go on. Not until this point, no. So <laughs> I don't know a lot of background, truthfully. It was more artistic. Um, what's the word? My brain tonight. It's not no, enough tea. You should be able is. to fill in the gaps then because I... Oh, I'm not yeah. sure. So anyway. What the bloody hell is this cat doing? She's going to hurt herself. I'm Why choosing to ignore rug? this. <laughs> Fair enough. So... He was born on August 27th, 1872. Technique, that's what I was going to say. Technique. Okay. His parents were living in the house of his paternal grandfather at the time he arrived, which proved to be quite fortunate as his grandfather just so happened to be a retired medical surgeon and his mother had a severe um, birthing-related illness shortly after he was born. she die? No, because... They had this retired surgeon. Oh, right. Oh, that's lucky. Yeah, it really was. Very. It was fitting, however, that what should have been a joyous occasion was tinged with a bit of drama. Mm. Because when Aubrey's parents, Vincent and Ellen... Another Vincent. Well, Aubrey's... Vincent was his middle name, so I think his middle name was for his father. Right. When his parents, Vincent and Ellen, had got married on October 12th, 1870, the weather had been so bad with a storm blowing in from the channel that they had had to enter the church from a side door rather than the main entrance because there were serious concerns Ellen wouldn't, would have taken off. Oh, my God, how light was she? She was quite light. She was three stone too. And her, her dress was <laughs> huge, with many underskirts and petticoats. Oh, my God, Mary Poppins. In yeah, that's, that's how it would have been. So they had to go through a side door, which seemed to be a bit of an ill omen, but, oh, yeah, God. they shrugged it off. Then almost immediately after the wedding, the widow of a clergyman announced that Vincent had agreed to marry her before marrying Ellen and sued the new couple for breach of promise, which was a thing you used to be able to do if someone broke off an engagement without due cause. Wow. You could sue them, basically going, I was now, I was banking on becoming Mrs. Beardsley 
and now I'm not going to. So you need to pay me all the lost earnings, essentially. Lost earnings? Yeah. All that housekeeping money over the course of the next 40 years. Yeah, but it... I mean, there was now on paper, like... It was still a promise. And this is this is Victorian England. This is... A man's word is his bond. This is ridiculous. Well, Vincent, at the time, was living off an inheritance rather than a salary from a job. Because he was a bit of a sickly guy. He had TB. Mm. Um, he was funding his lifestyle entirely from the passive income of the buildings that had been gifted to him. And in order to settle out of court and avoid a scandal, he was forced to sell off most of the property, mm-hmm. ensuring that his newly married life would begin with the threat of financial hardship suddenly looming. And nice. apparently from that point on, Ellen was kind of, she wasn't as into the marriage anymore. Because oh, no. she'd agreed to marry him and had married him going, oh, this guy, he's got, you know, a regular income mm-hmm. and he doesn't have to work. We can just bum around doing the boho art scene because mm-hmm. she was very much an artiste herself, a oh, musician. Right. Very nice. She she loved to entertain. She loved to have people compliment her on how artistic and great she was. Mm-hmm. The fortune slid inexorably downwards moving to London in 1873, where they had to live as lodgers in the house of a retired music hall star. Sounds like it'd be fun. Oh, my God. This is like the start of a Poirot or something. He was always, you know, pulling out his old hits. Yeah. I just imagine it being a bit dreary. It's like a series of should-have-beens and has-beens. You know what I mean? It's shoulda, woulda, couldas. It does feel that way. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, Vincent... He had to take a job and he was working Mm. as a clerk at the Westminster Brewery, which apparently was owned by part of the uh, family on Ellen's side. So it's basically, he's good for nothing, but we can give him an office job. You know, you can't mess up the paperwork that much. Just keep him away from the beer. Mm. No, Vincent, no. Uh, Ellen started to focus more and more on her two children. Mm -hmm. Aubrey and his older sister, Mabel. Because oh, she was determined that they would excel to the point that they could lift her back to the station in life that she felt she deserved. Okay, that's a dangerous game yeah. to play, but we've all seen dance moms. Yeah, well, she she married someone thinking that he was going to be her, her ticket to the good life. That quickly evaporated. <clears throat> and then she, for some reason, still had two kids with him. But they were an investment. Wow. You know, if she invested less than 20 years in them... Mm they would be paying out for the rest of, you know, her natural-born life. So it's, it's, it's a gamble she was taking. Fair enough. According to Ellen, young Aubrey was able to recognise musical tempos at age one and learn to read intuitively with no formal schooling by the age of three. Bullshit. Well, this is what having, Ellen says. Have, yeah, well, Ellen can shut up. They're like, no, no, I've met the women like this before at groups. Mm. No, 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 no. Having gone through the pain of reception year Mm. phonics with our daughter and this year coming up, we will have to go through it with Milo. Oh, Mm. my God. The fear is real. Um, There is no way. There is no way unless he was... I don't know. Nah, nah. Well, she says by age three he was reading. So no. obviously by age four she was uh, pushing him into reading a bit of Charles Dickens. 
Did you literally just do a spit take? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's a good, it's a good um, grounding in you know oh. the, the morality of the time. Reading your Dickens at age four. I'm not being funny, but at age four, most of the kids are the cat sat on the mat. Yeah, well, no, he was reading, um, Char- you know, Oliver Twist, no. and she was she was going that that is us, that's us. We're that level of destitute. You must save us, Aubrey. <laughs> She's delusional, this woman. But not only was she raising, you know, a protege, she was making sure that he always knew that he was a special little boy. Oh, I bet he did. He was the best little boy, and he would undoubtedly become a very famous and successful man. I'm surprised he isn't called Pubert. (laughs) At the tender age of seven, though, Aubrey became ill, developing a cough and a fever. The doctor was called for and eventually gave a diagnosis of tuberculosis. Okay, that is pretty serious. It was decided that the dirty air of London... Ooh, sorry. <laughs> hit my cup on the mic. It's been a long day. Go on. <laughs> it was decided that the dirty air of London would damage Aubrey's chances of recovery, so he was quickly whisked away to the countryside to attend a small boarding school called Hamilton Lodge, about eight miles outside of Brighton. Okay. Aubrey spent only four terms at the school, but it was his first chance to experience having friends his own age, and he quickly learned that the behaviour that impressed his teachers didn't impress those new friends. Aubrey responded by purposefully developing a reputation for pranks and a mischief, (laughs) and was able to switch between the two personas seemingly at will. Mm. Was he a bit like Jennings or just William? Well, it seemed like he, he was, you know, intelligent enough Mm. Like he could always catch up and he didn't really have to pay attention. And when when he needed to, he could charm the teachers. But most of his efforts were, I want to be the Liked. guy. Yeah, I want to be the I class clown. washed. <laughs> yeah, every break time. Mm. Mm. It was also at this school that Aubrey started drawing in earnest. Mm-hmm. Although his mother gave the excuse that he returned to London as his condition had improved, it is more likely that the family couldn't afford the fees for another term. Indeed, at the age of nine, Aubrey had started selling his drawings, which were done on commission. Very nice. To family and to friends. He managed to earn a respectable 30 quid in just over a year, which back in, you know, you're looking at the 1890s here, he's doing a fair old whack to make 30 quid a year. Well, that's not too bad anyway. Now. (laughs) It was thought, though, that this was a way of providing charity to the family without forcing his mother to accept direct help. Okay, fair enough. So the the implication is they could see the family were moving towards destitution and they wanted to help, but... So they bought his dabs and scribblings. No, 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 they commissioned them. They asked him to do certain things and he would do them. (laughs) His dabs and scribblings. Oh, let him do a picture. I'll put it on the fridge. But this played into Ellen's um, delusion. Oh God! Very right. strongly because oh, she's, she's very going. Delusional. Well, you know, he's already helping to support the he family. He can read Dickens, you know. Oh no, he's onto Shakespeare by now. Oh, give over. So yeah, she's she's not seeing it as what it is, which is concealed charity, and mm. she's thinking, oh look, if he's making thirty pounds a year and he's nine, and if that goes up by a rate of ten pounds a year, you know, he's going to be making enough for us all to live off by the time he's twenty. Huzzah! Mm. It's starting. It's starting. The plan. Mm. I want to... What's his sister doing at this point? His big sister? Uh, She was doing drama 
uh, acting and music. Oh, she was a thesp. She was a thesp, but she was actually quite a good thesp, apparently. I mean, when I say good thesp, we're talking top of Amdram. Aubrey also began producing illustrations to go along with whatever book he was reading at the time, reportedly starting with a gothic novel. Gothic? Gothic! With a gothic novel <laughs> called The Jackdaw of Rames. It may have been the subject matter of his reading, or his naturally overactive imagination, but it was around this time that Aubrey claimed he experienced a vision. <gasps> From God? I should think so. Because okay. the content of the vision gives a bit of a clue. Okay. It was a vision of a giant crucifix with a <laughs> bleeding Christ falling off the wall. Oh, definitely not God then. <laughs> Well, this is the thing. It's described as a giant crucifix with a bleeding Christ falling off the wall. And I don't know if there should be a comma in there and it's a giant crucifix and Jesus Christ is falling off a wall <laughs> or if there's a giant crucifix of G- with Jesus on, on it, it on the wall. Falling off. Which again, it, it's Jesus first, isn't it? Like, you know, when you've got a whichever slice of bread. Way, whichever way you slice it, this is sounding a bit Humpty Dumpty-ish. Yeah. yeah. Either way, <laughs> Jesus is getting a face full of dirt. Yeah. He didn't stay at home for long, did Aubrey, and he was back in school at age 12, being right. sent to the 300-student Brighton Grammar School, half, halfway through term, to make it even more awkward for him to try and acclimatise. So this is a guy who, if we're being fair, went to just over a year of primary school and yeah. is then being sent to secondary school halfway through term. Oh, goody. In year eight, by the sounds of it. It's like, oh, good. Well, I'm going to do fine. He was assigned to act as a fag, or general dog's body, for those who didn't go to grammar school, Mm -hmm. for an older boy called Hind Smith. Mm. When asked what he could do that was useful, he responded by playing a piano piece he had composed, drawing a caricature of Hind Smith, and then reciting a poem he'd written about a pirate. Right. This earned him the nickname Shakespeare from the other students, and more importantly, gave him an idea for a new personality to cultivate. Oh, God. So he's got his studious academic. He's got his prankster. But now, Aubrey started playing the part of a world-weary artiste. Oh, God. Complaining eloquently and humorously about having to learn such trifling and unimportant subjects as maths and science. Yeah, I feel his pain. Yeah, his carefully cultivated character ensured that he was liked by the teachers and students despite his burly passing grades and inability to take part in sports due to his fragile health. So he'd stand on the side making witticisms while coughing into a handkerchief mm. while the mm. other boys played rugger. Mm. And was it a white handkerchief and was there about three spots of red blood on it? <laughs> it's the assumption, you know. Not right now. Right, okay. There will be, though, because TB <laughs> is TB is something that doesn't go away. Is it not? Not at that time. Oh, there was right, no okay. way of treating it. So right. he basically was just living with TB from the oh, age of seven. God. Right, okay. It was testament to how well he played the part that he was thought of as an intellectual despite his lack of academic achievement. He began reading Byron, Shelley and the work of Edgar Allan Poe, but was also an avid reader of fairy stories and Alice in Wonderland. Yay, my favourite. Enjoying the illustrations as much as the stories themselves. Yeah, I like pictures. (laughs) Pictures is good. Words make my brain hurt hard. Yay. I need the pictures to tell me what done gun happen. In my book. <laughs> to be fair, I imagine that when you're reading Rupert, yes. 
you look at the pig pictures that just have the one rhyming couplet rather than reading the actual prose you story. the impression I can't read. I can read perfectly well, thank you very much. I am university educated after all, but I do have a preference for a book with pictures. Mm. And do you know what? Mm. There's nothing wrong with that. There Don't let nothing. people... I'm not letting people... Yeah. No, no. Don't, don't let people judge not, you. No. Yeah. Don't you dare. He began illustrating the school copies of texts, some of which were so good that the teachers asked him to make reproductions that they could keep. Mm. Aubrey also got involved in acting, like his sister, forming a small theatre troupe with two school friends. Oh, God. School theatre stuff's never good. Well, luckily, he doesn't keep it up. Good. Mm. Although one of his friends, one of these two friends, does go over to America and become a producer of musicals. Oh, right. Razzle-dazzle. So one of them does keep Give it up. Give him the old razzle-dazzle. Razzle-dazzle. Eventually, he began contributing illustrations to the school newspaper, which was called Past and Present. Oh. It was the first school newspaper, apparently, ever set up in an English school. Now, the source I was reading claimed this. I can't verify but it was the first school newspaper set up in an english school past and present brighton and he soon expanded his portfolio by sending illustrations and writing to other local brighton newspapers it felt like aubrey was on his way to a career in art and nothing nothing could stop him His parents pulled him out of school at the age of 16 because they needed him to get a job and help support the family after his dad had been made unemployed. Okay. He got fired from a family job. Vincent Beardsley (laughs) was not built for the world of work, darling. He liked things like naps. We all do. And Sudoku. (laughs) But, you know, we have to make the money. Well, Vincent didn't because he had a son now who could take over the role uh, of oh, making the family do that, money. Do we? Oh, not not taking over his job. I mean, taking over the role of provider. Right. And suddenly, Aubrey's mother was speaking less about his special talent and more about his ability to contribute to the family purse. Oh. And in order to completely crush his dreams of an artistic career, he was pushed into the post of an insurance clerk. So he was going to based be- on what? Based on the fact that he could write. It was it was a low office position. It wasn't that he had to understand anything about insurance. It was basically, right. copy this. Oh, right, okay. However, Aubrey refused to give up on his dream, and what money wasn't put into the family kitty was spent on Hollywell Street, where a number mm-hmm. of second-hand bookshops stood. Okay. These particular shops had a reputation for selling obscene literature and art. Oh, I see. Because Aubrey had the idea that outrage and notoriety were the shortest route to fame. Okay, yeah, I can, yeah, okay. And when a recurrence of his tuberculosis left him bleeding from the mouth, he spent his time recovering by reading illustrated medical guides and French books about sex. Yeah, he was reading about the anatomy in more ways than one. Nipples and bums. Because he'd already had this idea that, that you can either become really, really good at what you do, or you can shock people. Mm-hmm. And both get the same amount of newspaper. Yeah, of course they do. They still do. Yeah. Inspired by the saucy French, he sent a naughty short (laughs) story... He sent a naughty short story to a national periodical, unironically called Titbits. (laughs) (laughs) Titbits! Love it. 
they published his naughty story <laughs> and they sent him 30 shillings. 30 shillings for yep. tidbits. <laughs> 30 shillings from tidbits. <laughs> as much as Aubrey wanted to be an artist, above all, he wanted to be famous. Right. So the validation of payment for his story led him to make the snap decision to become a writer instead. He dramatically collected together his best pen and ink drawings into an album for posterity. Okay. So that he could look back over, you know, on a, on a dreary day. We could, oh, I also like to do art back in the day and he'll show people mm. and they'll go, but these were amazing. Not only are you the premier writer of saucy short stories, you are also an amazing artist. Yeah, he vowed then, after he collected them all together, to focus solely on writing from that point onwards. Okay. Firstly, he tried to write a three-act play. But this was a bit harder than a short story. Yeah. And Aubrey had never really developed an attention span. <laughs> no, some people don't. So he didn't He didn't finish it. He got maybe half an act through a three-act <laughs> oh play. Oh, God, a sixth of the way through. <laughs> He, he, it's okay. It's okay. It's teething troubles. He just needed a different kind of challenge. To be to be honest, I I once decided I was going to write a book, my book, my mm. murder mystery book, and uh, I've so far I've written a chapter and a half. Yep. Yeah. I've written more than that of mine, but still remains unfinished. Yeah. Yeah, and weirdly, after failing to write a play, which I think of as quite a brief thing, he thought I'll write a novel. <laughs> But he found that this was even harder. It is really hard. Yeah. So he returned to drawing in 18, uh, 1891. Okay. Finally, though, this time, actually deciding to study the medium oh, by right. visiting galleries and museums. Collecting, collecting prints, illustrated books, and, of course, if you want to be an artist, you have to draw. He started sketching. Good. Both during his free time and whilst at work in the insurance office. Instead of doing insurance-type things... He was just sketching the other people who were sat over their desks doing the actual work. Or when the managers came in to shout at him for not reaching his targets, he would be sketching them. Mm -hmm. And luckily for Aubrey, he was allowed to get away with it as the bosses liked the caricatures he did of them. Oh, that's all right. So he, he just invented the post of office Doodler. chronicler. <laughs> yeah. And they went, yeah, OK, Aubrey. Fair enough. Yeah. I can't stay mad at you. You catch you catch me so well. You see into my soul. Fair enough. By July of 1891, after nearly four whole months of dedicating himself to artistic study, mm -hmm. Aubrey felt he was ready to become a he was ready to become a professional. To confirm his hypothesis, he collected together a portfolio of his best work and went directly to the house of his artistic hero, Edward Byrne Jones, one of the stars of the aesthetic movement alongside William Morris. Yes. So he's aiming high. This is a pre-Raphaelite sort of grandee mm -hmm. that he's just going to visit unannounced at his house. Aubrey was invited in and was shown some of the paintings Byrne Jones was working on before he was finally asked by the older artist if he happened to draw himself. It probably clocked the, you know, the folio. I was going to say, he'll have taken a bag of... No, he did. He had his portfolio with yeah. him. And probably the entire time when he's trying to show Aubrey stuff, Aubrey sort of, hmm... Mm. Oh, for God's sake. Fine. Shows your etchings. Do you draw? Yes. Aubrey handed over his portfolio and waited for the assessment of the man he considered to be the best living artist in the world at that time. Ooh. And this is the response he got. Oh, I'm waiting. You should never meet your heroes. 
Uh-huh. My, in my opinion, you should never meet your heroes. This, this is what Burne Jones said, right? Mm. I seldom or never advise anyone to take up art as a profession. But in your case, I can do nothing else. You beautiful bastard. Wow. I added the last bit. Oh, it worked for him then. Mm. Which, yeah, it's a pretty comprehensive thumbs up. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm always like, you know, like, you know, like famous people and people you, you admire and, pe- you know, like people you look up to, mm. idols, whatever field that you're in. My my fear has always been, and I don't think I'm alone on this, is that when you actually meet them, they might be a complete and total tit and thus shattering the person you put on that pedestal. And uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, it worked out for him, but I, I think it probably doesn't work out 50% of the time at least. Probably not, but Aubrey was a lucky bugger because was. not only did he give him the thumbs up, Burn Jones... He immediately took on the role of patron and offered to help in any way he could. Oh, wow. Suggesting that Aubrey would only need to study for about two hours a day. Get himself up to scratch. Not bad. Mm. Incidentally, this exchange had just so happened to take place in front of Oscar Wilde's wife, who later divulged the hot gossip to her husband. What the hell was she doing there, just creeping in a corner? What? No, she's just part of the artistic set. No, she's just late. there taking tea. Blazing on a chaise longue. Yeah, right. Oscar, you'll never guess what. Burn Jones got himself a new young fella mid him. And Oscar's like, is he handsome? Ooh. <laughs> what's what's he look like? I mean, I'm not particularly interested, but could you see a bulge in his pants? Mm. Uh, Aubrey began attending evening classes at the Westminster School of Art, naturally gravitating towards drawing the nudes. Boobies! Because, you know... He got a little bit of money from Titbits writing a saucy story, so <laughs> maybe he'd get a bit more if he drew a saucy image. Actual Titbits. Yeah. <laughs> Bits and dicks. These nudes <laughs> drew the attention of another famous art. These nudes drew the attention of another famous artist called Amy Valance, who offered to present him to the leading lights of the Pre-Raphaelites on Valentine's Amia? Day. Is it not Amia? <laughs> <laughs> These nudes drew the attention of another famous artist called Amir Valance. Thank you. Who offered to present him to the leading lights of the Pre-Raphaelites on Valentine's Day, 1892. It was a day when Aubrey was indeed showered with love. He sold some of his works and it was agreed that he should be introduced to William Morris himself as soon as possible. Oh, how exciting. Which is, oh, I mean, in terms of a Valentine's Day present. Mm-hmm. Finally, the day arrived, and Aubrey confidently went to see William Morris and showed the great man his work. Scary. Yeah. Morris hated it. I bet he did. Every single bit of it. Oh, no. See, this is what I was saying about not meeting your heroes. He just he just didn't like it. He was, he was just upfront and open about it. It's like, I don't care for your work. Yeah, it, it's... <sighs> It's one of those, it's part and parcel of kind of creating anything really music, you know, in within the sphere of the arts is, is so subjective, but I'm not going to lie, it hurts when somebody says, nah, it's not for me. It does hurt. Mm. No, you, you, you're putting yourself out there in a very raw it is, sense. It and... is, it is very raw. 
Well, it was Aubrey's first experience of rejection. Oh. And it's fair to say he did not take it well. I wouldn't imagine so. He abandoned any desire to join the pre-Raphaelites and, even though he had agreed to complete a commission of illustrations for a new edition of Le Mort d'Arthur, the Arthurian legends, Mm -hmm. he otherwise abandoned the pre-Raphaelite style in favour of a Japanese graphic style that he called Fantastic Impressionism. Ooh. It contained many more nipples and penises. Crack on, mate. In keeping with this new and shocking subject matter, Aubrey also began flirting with homosexual culture, becoming a dandy. Was he Was he gay? It's very hard to tell. As far as I can see, he was completely asexual. It was mm. like he studied sex and mm. was interested in it from a purely academic standpoint. Interesting. You know, he saw what sex could do in terms of shocking people. Yeah. And in terms of getting him notoriety. But in terms of showing any kind of inclination towards males or females Mm. i couldn't find anything that suggested he'd you know he ever had a relationship fair enough Mm. if he was in love with anything though Mm. it was himself and the persona he was carefully crafting yeah he joined a new group of artists called the decadence Ooh. joining them for a group trip to paris in the summer of 1892 nice and this was about the time when he started wearing his um he he basically created a uniform for himself that Im- included these sort of yellow, uh, lovely little gloves, and he'd wear grey suits, and he, he everything about him was very curated from this point on. Mm. He decided that with the decadence, with this fantastic impressionism style, he had what was saleable, and he was making mm. sure that he packaged it. And from this point, he was doing things like saying he'd never had any artistic training that he'd never had Mm. any leg up from anyone whatsoever. You know, he tried to create this mystique that he just arrived one day fully formed as an artist and that he had no inspirations. Yeah, I think when that got back to the people who had helped him and supported him and try, you know, try... Oh, him and Burne Jones fell out massively. I'm not surprised. Mainly because Aubrey started shit-talking him (laughs) because he was a member of the pre-Raphaelites and, you know, William Morris had... uh, Pooed on his dream. He, he pooed on his dream, so Aubrey burnt that bridge comprehensively. You know, he was like, mm. I don't I don't need to have any connections with them at all. He was only completing the Lamort d'Arthur under duress. Does does he not come across to you, this is how I read him, as a narcissist? He comes across to me as extremely insecure because his mum told him he was going to be special mm. and he was great and told him all these things he was doing before he had memory. So, oh, when you were one, you were tapping up and all of this. So mm. it feels like he just can't fail now. Well, that's an interesting question. Are narcissists born or are they made? I think it's a mix of both. I think mm. there'll be some na- nature, some nurture. But in this case, I think anything that told him that he was a failure, he had to it completely expunge from his life. He had to, mm. you know, get it because he couldn't handle that because it didn't fit with the worldview his mum had brought him up to have, that he was perfect and yeah, everything he did was perfect. it's an important life lesson, that, isn't it? It's something we're definitely, you know, kind of quick to pick up on. I mean, it's 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 very hard, especially with young kids, to kind of tell them that what they're doing, they could do better or, mm. you know, oh, you've not got that quite right. You know, you don't shatter their dreams, but I think you do need to, to give them good, spoonfuls of reality rather than oh, yeah. creating a, a world of of no failure because that's just ridiculous well we're seeing we're seeing the impact we of this are. because you know he he jumped in 
with the decadence. He was like, right, they're all saying I'm great. I'm all in with these guys now. Right. He was celebrating when they went to Paris as well because he'd received a commission in his new style to create a series of black and white posters, mm. which would net him 160 quid and enough work to keep him going for at least a year. He Not took bad. the opportunity to resign from his insurance job, which I'm sure they were devastated about. Well, yeah, I mean, he was, he was hardly... Uh... He was hardly working hard, was he? No. Slash at all. On his return, he got another great commission doing weekly cartoons for Paul Mall for the sum of £10 per week. Mm. And it seemed that his stark and shocking style was finally starting to pay dividends. Mm-hmm. I mean, to describe the style, it is highly stylized. Yes. People, yes. generally, in just black ink mm. with lots and lots of black space and lots and lots of white space it's very it's stark in terms of backgrounds it is it it's it's very um you know imagine your photo negative Hmm. it's it's very kind of like positive space v negative space and um it's very fluid Hmm. a lot of it's very fluid and then it jars with some very um strong angles but also like i always saw it as very nouveau it Mm. was very art nouveau i think personally that's where i'd put it in they definitely Um, took some pointers from him definitely took some pointers from him because Mm. the 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 naturalistic fluid movement there is definitely there well it was shocking it was new Mm. and it would gain the attention of other notorious celebrities including oscar wilde Oh, back to the wild. Oscar and Aubrey met and immediately hit it off, with Oscar providing Aubrey with a signed copy of his latest play, Salome. Mm-hmm. Inscribed, March 93, for Aubrey, for the only artist who, besides myself, knows what the dance of the seven veils is and can see that invisible dance. Don't know what it means. How mysterious. I know. It had been planned that Oscar Wilde would join Aubrey and the other decadents on their second annual Paris trip, mm-hmm. as he was apparently very interested in furthering his relationship with the young man, specialising in obscene drawings. Mm. But at the last minute, he was called away. Because okay. when you're Oscar Wilde, you have, you have things to do. You do. You're a busy man. To make up for the disappointment, though, Oscar commissioned Aubrey to provide illustrations to his new play on his return from Paris. Mm. So he was going to do the Salome illustrations. Mm-hmm. The 93 trip turned out to be a right laugh. Not only did the decadents live up to their name by skinny dipping in the lake at Versailles. Was it Top Bance? It was Top Bance, but skinny dipping at Versailles, at the palace. Oh, wow. Uh, But they also packed into a (laughs) gap. They also packed into a cab so tightly that the bottom fell out and they were left skittering along on their feet like a foppish version of the anthill mob. (laughs) I'm I'm getting... um... Flintstones vibes from that. It was a bit Flintstones. They were on (laughs) a hill, apparently. (laughs) So they just had to keep going. On returning, Aubrey realised that he had three long-term commissions, as well as a weekly commitment to Pall Mall. So he naturally decided that this was the perfect time to add another project called Masks, Mm. a planned book of illustrations and incidental prose, meaning that the two elements would have no connection to each other. No. So... he was very much of the opinion he, that he was constrained as an illustrator. Yes. By the fact that what you drew had to be in some way connected to the, the, the writing that had come well, before. that's part of commission work. Yeah, and he hated that. So he envisaged an opportunity where he could just draw whatever he liked 
and it yeah. didn't really need to match whatever text there was there oh, and that no. the, the disconnect between the two itself would be an artistic statement I kind of get it, but also that's just what your portfolio is. So it's essentially just going to be a bound portfolio then. Mm. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he he just wanted an excuse to draw whatever came to mind. Yeah. And to be fair, you know, it probably was for the best because he was so sick of the Mort D'Arthur commission by this time, Mm. considering he was having to do it in a style he no longer identified with. To, okay. You know, because yeah. it was a it was being released in a serialization. So mm-hmm. the first ones he he was dead into it. Yeah. And they were beautiful drawings. And then he was starting to be late with the commissions, and mm-hmm. he was starting to have to be chased up. Uh, yeah, he was hiding penises in the background by this stage, <laughs> just to try and convince himself not to give up on the project. The I'm only way he could enjoying the bullshiness of that. Yeah. The only way he could force himself to do it was by trying to play pranks. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, going back to his school days. Yeah. He grudgingly carried on with his commissions into 1894, pushing the boundaries of taste, especially in his Salome illustrations. This started to create tensions with Oscar Wilde, Mm. who realised that his play might be upstaged by the accompanying illustrations. People were talking a hell of a lot more about uh, the head of John the Baptist is one that's famous. Mm. Um, The two began sniping at each other and became frenemies. <gasps> so whenever they met it was sort of like forced mm. politeness and smiles but they'd be snide comments they'd be releasing things to the newspapers you know, yeah a smile little... just with your mouth not with your eyes yeah those kinds of things because they desperately wanted to upstage each other mm. i think on his part he was like if i can upstage oscar wilde i have arrived mm-hmm. and oscar was on top at this point so yeah. was, i need to make sure that i maintain my position understandable mm. yeah It got so bad that when Aubrey and a friend came up with the idea for a periodical celebrating the art and writings of the decadent movement in April, Mm. Aubrey insisted that there was a stipulation that Oscar Wilde was not allowed to be a contributor. So he's he's literally, I want a no Oscar clause in this. Wow. Yeah. The eventual creation was called The Yellow Book and would cost five shillings with an initial print run of 5,000 copies. Mm-hmm. And five shillings was quite a bit. You know, this, this was this was a middle class book. This was not... Was it a coffee table book? It was, it was a coffee table book, yeah, because it was articles, it was illustrations, it mm. was bits of prose. Mm. It was something that you could have to show that you were part of the, the bleeding edge of the artistic movements. Mm. Also, I mean, you know, if you, if you wanted to have a book to have out, you know... I imagine kind of like middle class parties where you might have such and such to, you know, impress, you know, being radical mm. was, you know, at the forefront of what people wanted to be, you know, desperately wanted to be. Oh, gosh, They've aren't got, they ooh. edgy? <gasps> well, it was not received well by the critics. Oh, OK. But they complained about things like it's too shocking. It's okay. got too many boobs in it. Yeah, there's, there's. I mean, that's just a perennial problem. Mm. And the neuro- and the anything no- at the cutting edge, it's yeah. perennial problem. Well, the notoriety surrounding it ensured that the 5,000 copies sold out in five days and led to multiple reprints for both the domestic and foreign market. Wow. However, it went down well in France. It went down well in America, apparently. No! Yeah, the Americans <sighs> loved a bit of it. Wow. 
However, despite the massive profits and his increasing fame, Aubrey was frustrated that his yellow book was being referred to as the Oscar Wilde of periodicals. (laughs) Frenemies. Yeah. So he's like, I've done everything to keep Oscar Wilde away from this. It's the Oscar Wilde of books. (laughs) Shit! You piss off, you Irish tit! Frenemy you! But Aubrey, at least, was a celebrity in his own right now. Mm Mm-hmm. And his grey suits and his claims to have arrived fully formed Mm -hmm. to the art scene uh, were being lapped up by an audience that wanted someone with that air of mystique. Yeah. And the fact that he was this gangly, sort of emaciated youth with very angular features and very Mm -hmm. long fingers that he showed off in every picture I've ever seen of the man. Mm -hmm. He looked like one of his creations. He was so sickly. Yeah, but he was... He was graphic. Yes. You know, he he was designed mm. almost. It was Well, here's an interesting point. Um I can't remember who said it, so don't ask because I don't know. But when I was studying art and design, which is what I have a degree in. Mm. Um it has been said that when you create art as an artist, you do put so much of yourself in it that everything that you create looks like you in some way okay well i can definitely see it with aubrey yeah yeah, i think some people it shows i think it depends on on what you're creating you know i mean if you're drawing people a bowl of fruit i think you know you're struggling but i don't know maybe it's it's the way you put it together maybe it 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 Mm. gives the essence of who you are as a person the way you mark on the page to be honest i can see that with picasso as well yes and dali yes yeah yeah so you leave you leave an impression of yourself on Makes the page. Make me worry about Lowry. <laughs> oh, have you ever seen Lowry? I'm imagining old man flat cap. Pretty much. Oh, fair enough. He's well, then yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It. It's just like if you could play a game where you had loads of famous pictures and then you had the artists, would you be able to match them? We shall play such a game. We should. I we think should, I yeah. think so. Christmas Christmas quiz, we'll do that. Match the picture to the artiste. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to go ones that aren't so well-known facially. Mm. I mean, if we did Van Gogh, Picasso, Dali... Yeah, it's, yeah, like it's not going to be that People difficult. know who they are, but I think we could use that as, a, as an idea. Mm. Yeah, put a pin in it. Mm. Anyway, back to Aubrey. Mm. He was also, now that he had the celebrity, in order to try and, you know keep himself in the public eye much mm. like oscar wilde he was flirting with the idea that he might be a secret homosexual so he's making oh, little right, comments okay. but n- never anything too mm. you know salacious just enough to give hints but the constant glare of celebrity took its toll on his fragile health and in november 1894 he was forced to leave london for the Malverns after another lung hemorrhage which oh, must have been gosh. fun apparently it's just he wasn't coughing up blood blood was just dribbling up yeah the second third fourth and fifth editions of the yellow book were released with aubrey as art editor he had finished his commissions and was looking forward to a new even more shocking project when disaster struck oh no mm. and it wasn't his health okay on april 6th 1895 that's Os- our anniversary april 6th is hopefully not 1895 no. <laughs> but it's not just the anniversary of our love Oh, Welcome lovely, to our love. Lovey lumps. Um, <laughs> Welcome to our love. 
Car Share. If you haven't watched it, watch it. It's amazing. It's also the anniversary of Oscar Wilde being arrested for gross indecency. Is it? It is. He was arrested on April 6th, 1895. Gosh. And it was reported that he had a copy of the yellow book under his arm at the time. Wow. In spite of their strained relationship, the Salome Commission had linked Aubrey to Oscar in the eyes of the public. Mm. The yellow book editors fired Aubrey, but only told him after he completed the cover for the sixth edition. It was quickly and quietly replaced. Wow. However, they forgot to replace his artwork for the back cover, so he did appear a little bit in the Uh sixth edition, but it was the last one he would. Because unfortunately, he was associated, and they looked at it and went, oh my God, he's got the yellow book under his arm, and we need to distance ourselves from this. And the Mm -hmm. best way we can do that is to take the person that everyone... Oscar Wilde. Oh, Aubrey did the pictures for that. Mm. We need to use him as a scapegoat. Yeah. And go, the rest of us had nothing to do with Oscar Wilde, really. It was just yeah. Aubrey. Yeah. So by association, Aubrey found he was suddenly considered to be tainted and not safe to work with. Oh. For his association with Oscar Wilde, who he had tried so hard not to be associated mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. In desperation to revive his public presence, he agreed to work with a pornographer called Smithers to create a new, even more controversial periodical called The Savoy. Mm. The first edition was rushed out in January 1896. However, while the Yellow Book editors had challenged Aubrey to produce subtle work, Smithers encouraged Aubrey to be shocking and controversial. The reception was not good because, you know, all the people around him in the decadent movement were going, Aubrey, it's a bit on the nose, mate. Yeah, you're being obvious now. Whereas Smithers was going, larger breasts! Mm -hmm. Bigger dangles. Come on! I want to see it turgid. Mm -hmm. The reception to the Savoy was not good, and before the year was out, Aubrey was kicked off his new periodical, just as he had been the first. Oh, dear. He found himself suddenly a non-person in the London art scene. Mm. Never being good at accepting rejection, he redoubled his efforts, even as his health began to fail again desperately seeking to be accepted back into the fold. It's a bit of a tragic story, really. A someone, mm. to, a no-one to a someone to a no-one. Yeah, and how brief his someone-ness yes. was. Oh, yeah. His frantic work schedule inevitably took its toll, and on December 10th, 1896, Aubrey suffered a further massive hemorrhage. Yeah. While trying to recover, mm. Aubrey had a revelation that he described as a spiritual awakening. Realising he may never be accepted again in artistic circles he looked for another community that might take him in and give him purpose. He converted to Catholicism on the last day of March, 1897. Soon after, on April 9th, he moved to France in the hopes that it would aid his recuperation, Mm. determined to rediscover his pre-Raphaelite beginnings and to produce Christian art that would allow him to recuperate his image. Fair enough. He wrote in his diary that the coming year, 1898, would see either his death or his greatest accomplishments. Mm. It was clear by March 6th that the latest hemorrhage was terminal. Mm -hmm. The following day, he wrote to Smithers, imploring his former employer to destroy all of his most controversial works that he'd been working on prior to his conversion. Realising that Aubrey was dying, Smithers naturally refused the request, as he reckoned that the art would soon be increasing in value. Yeah. Although I'm sure he didn't tell Aubrey that. Smithers. Yeah, I've burnt it. It's in in the bin. (laughs) Promise. The big burny bin. Pinky swear. Yeah. 
Thank you, Smithers. No, thank you, Aubrey. Aubrey Beardsley died on March 16th after 10 days of increasing agony. He was only 25 years old. But in his brief career of only six years, he had managed to become one of the most notorious artists of the late 19th century. Mm. He was buried in France. And that is the brief, brief life of Aubrey Beardsley. Mm. But his work is brilliant. Oh, God, yes. He's he's absolutely brilliant. So, yeah. In terms of that real graphic mm. style, mm. you know, no one had really done it before him, in England at least. I know no. that Hokusai and all the Japanese artists that he definitely took inspiration from, oh, yeah. regardless of what he says, have been doing it, but it was something new, shocking. And like you say, the Art Nouveau style was heavily influenced. Yeah, I'd say so. He's very fun to study. Mm. He's, you know, if you fancy kind of doing something in in his style, it's it's actually a nice a nice thing to do. Mm. I imagine um, so. It's know, deceptive. It looks Indian deceptively ink. easy as well. I'm, it's yeah. so much harder, I imagine, than it looks when he's done one. Yeah, but it, you know, it's nice to just kind of like you literally have a nice white piece of paper and you get your black Indian ink and. It, there's something very definite about putting black ink on white paper. Um, there's no half arse. There's in there. no half arse. You've got to be. You've got to be fairly confident. But saying that, it it does make you very kind of like easy breezy with it. The more you do it, and mm. you do get those lovely fluid marks. It's nice. It's a it's a good thing to do. Mm. And the main source for today's uh, episode yeah. was Aubrey Beardsley. A biography by Matthew Sturgis. Mm. And it was, yeah, I mean, it was a lovely thing to read through because it really does give the idea of, yes, he created this persona, but a lot like most of the celebrities you see, you have this very carefully guarded and very sort of refined, cultivated cultivated persona. Mm. It, It was based on a heck of a lot of just being so terrified of not being liked and being terrified of not being yeah. accepted. When you look at, say, um, Prince and you look yes. at the the way he was, it was, Prince was a persona he created because he was terrified yes. of being on stage yes. and of people rejecting him. And it seems like that's with a lot of celebrities who, who go down that sort of hyper-stylized route with themselves. I agree, I mean... It's a barrier that you can put up. Yeah, that, uh, yeah. You see it in all... all all types of of art you know so many artists don't actually like being looked at mm. I'm and not noticed saying... so it's it is it's putting on your cape mm. it's putting on your cape putting up your shield and i'm not i'm not saying aubrey was the first to do it ever no because of when he was doing it sort of like the very tail end of the victorian era mm. it was he was so much more accessible to see that this was what he was doing. There was lo- yeah. much more reporting. There was much more, you know, I mean, goddamn, there were photographs. Yeah, yeah That's exa- a new thing. Yeah, exactly. He had to consider how he was going to be photographed. Well, now it's 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 the same now. You know, you've mentioned prints. There's so many. I mean, what about Lady Gaga, for example? No, I think you'll find it's Lady Gaga. Okay, Lady Gaga. And, you know, how... And her poker face. Her p- poker face how well cultivated mm. her image is and it isn't it isn't just music you see actors doing it all the time i'm gonna go back to johnny depp because he's just wonderful but you know 
that is very carefully cultivated. Mm. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say, you know, these people probably like dressing how they dress, but the image that they give in front of a camera in, you know, whatever, is so carefully honed. Considered. That's the word I was looking Ooh, for this entire thing. Considered. It's considered. Yes. Yes. Oh, your former my f- my former tutor at be university. So happy. He would, yes. Is it oh. considered? Is it? Is it though? Well, Aubrey Beardsley, a considered gentleman, yes, who died age twenty five, which means we can't even add him to the twenty seven club. He was too hardcore for the twenty seven club. Well, there you go. Screw Jimi Hendrix, Aubrey Beardsley, the yeah. thinking man's <laughs> disaster. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have to leave it there. The thinking man's disaster. Hi there, it's Emma, chief organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify, and iTunes. How fancy! You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.